0: I'm going to read Genesis 25, verses 19 through 27. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padanarim, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord was entreated of him. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days... Be fulfilled, excuse me, and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Um, as I would mentioned this morning, I want to develop more what I talked about last week, perhaps um, some review so that whatever the truth came out last week would be further impressed upon our hearts. I'm going to name this morning's sermon. It comes from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 12, I believe. God works our works in us. God works our works in us. And so even by the very title, which comes from Isaiah, you can get an appreciation where it talks about we're working and God is working in us. And obviously that uh, reminds you of Philippians chapter 2. So let's open with a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word to us that we might appreciate the spiritual truths that thou art teaching In the lives of these people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, again, from last week, I want us to uh, review some things about Abraham's uh, walk and Sarah's walk so that we could appreciate what I uh, endeavored to set before us last week. So, based on the discussion of um, last week's sermon that took place during the fellowship time, I noticed that there were some issues about what I was trying to share with us with respect to sanctification and salvation with respect to what it says in Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, we read, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, now, much more in my absence. Now, think of this, since the Bible is a letter written from God to his people, think of it as Christ teaching. The Lord said to his disciples, he encouraged them to obey him, and so he said that when he left, he would leave them with the Holy Ghost. And so, think of this as Christ speaking to his disciples. When he left, he left his Holy Spirit, who indwells the believers, the Christians, and grants them or gives them the ability to be obedient to the things that God says. So he says again, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, meaning they've obeyed in the past, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Don't be worried about the guy next to you. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Contextually, salvation is presented to us in the Bible as threefold. Past tense, which something has already occurred. We know that Christ is a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's also presented to us in present tense, that which is presently occurring, and it's most commonly presented as in the future tense, that which will occur occur in the future. When we read in the book of Acts chapter 16, verse 30, that's the occasion when the Philippian jailer comes to Paul and says, sirs, what must I do, what must I do to be saved? Um, And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's future tense is set before us. So it's commonly in the Bible set before us in future tense. So the Christian... Do the exclusive work of God is saved from the wrath of God by God. That is, in the future, when God pours out his wrath upon us on people in judgment, he will not pour it out on his, um, those that believe in him, which takes place in the future. So God has not yet poured out his wrath on anyone except himself when he poured it on his son, Jesus Christ, with who is one with the Father. And this he did for the benefit of his people, those whom he elected unto salvation from before the foundation of the world. And this he did because of their sins. He poured his wrath out on Christ because of the sins of his people. Um, We contribute nothing to our salvation, and nothing I said last week should be inferred otherwise. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We cannot, however, ignore verses that don't comport with our tidy summaries of the gospel. In John chapter three, verse 23, we read that we are commanded by God to believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. So when we talk with people, we tend to use sloppy language when we ask them a question like, well, when did you get saved? Well, they were saved from from eternity past, and they are working out their salvation now, And they will be saved from the wrath that is yet to come. What we are really asking them is, when did you become a believer? In other words, when did God open your eyes so that you would understand what he has done on your behalf? When did God shine the light of the knowledge of glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in your heart. When did he do that? So when you ask somebody when they became saved, again, what you're really asking them is when did they become a believer? When did they, uh, God open their eyes and they understand what had happened? So, again, Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, in other words, obey what I'm telling you now, you've obeyed in the past, I want you to obey me now, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. Verse 12 says to work out. That's a verb. It's in the present tense, and it's in the imperative. He's telling you to do this. God is telling you to do this right now. Verse 13, where it talks about God worketh in you, that's a verb in the present tense, and that's happening right now. So you're working right now. You've been told to work right now, and God is working right now in you. They're both very complementary. So last week, representing the life of Abraham, I started with the sovereignty of God. We are saved from eternity past. How God knew him as he does all his people before the foundation of the world. And I quoted from two places that talk about that. Then I went to how God called him and brought him out of Babylon and changed his name. All of that was a sovereign act of God working in his life. All of God's things were working to give God glory, working to the glory of God. And all credit for Abraham's removal from Abraham to the promised land goes to God. He gets all the glory for it. Then I mentioned that it was Abraham who put one foot after another and actually walked all the way from Babylon to the promised land. And I quoted from Hebrew chapter 11 where it talks about where he knew not where he went. And so it is the calling for all Christians when God first opens their eyes and calls them, they don't appreciate and understand all of the things that God has done for them. They don't really know where they're going. They don't really know what things God has prepared for them in glory, but they learn about that through additionally walking with the Lord, growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's after a time that they understand what things God has done for them and what he's doing in them right now and what things um, he will have for them in the future. So the Genesis narrative of their walk sets before us Abraham and Sarah's hearts and their various struggles. And the Bible is minimalistic in its language, and so there are some things we have to appreciate in terms of their trials what was going on in their hearts? What we see is them working out their salvation with fear and trembling. As they walked into Canaan, they feared the people of the land. And if you remember from The Wizard of Oz, you remember where Dorothy and the, with the lion and the scarecrow. And who was the third person? The Tin Man, thank you. How they get into that that forest and they start saying, you know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my. And then the temple picks up lions and tigers and bears, oh my. I suspect that's what Abraham and Sarai were doing because they um, conspired within themselves that um, they would say that Sarah, who's an attractive woman, was Abraham's sister. It's an equivocation, which means it's a truth said with the intent to lie. So they agreed that, well, you know what? I'm afraid they're going to kill me, and uh, so we'll just let them take you, and that way I'll remain alive. It's it's really a sad thing that he did with his wife. He literally threw her under the bus. So, what we should appreciate from this is that in verse one and three of chapter twelve, God had promised to Abram that He would make of him a great nation. Now. He couldn't really do that if the people, the indigenous people, took his wife away from him because it was with her he would make a great nation with. Uh, They couldn't do it if he was dead. So he really had no reason to fear. But it's an example of how God gives us promises and we fail to trust in them. So again, we see this work itself out in their hearts. Now in verse 7 of chapter 12, you can appreciate that it says that the Canaanites are in the land. And as you study the Bible, you find out that they're were really uh, an awful people. They were quite idolatrous and engaged in all sorts of heathenistic practices. Then you get to verse 16 of chapter 13, and it says the Canaanite and the Perizzite are in the land. Now we know about there's two people in the land. Then you get over to chapter 15, and it names 10 different people that are in the land. And so you can appreciate that as he's growing in grace, God is opening the door to him in terms of his understanding and appreciation with all the dangers that are surrounding him, but they're affecting him less and less because he's becoming more and more uh, trusting in God. And so it is true in our lives, when you're a first Christian, you think to yourself, well, I've just only got a couple sins I need to work on. But as you become more mature in Christ, you realize that you have quite a number of sins that need to be worked on, but he doesn't reveal them all to you initially. It's Not until you grow in Christ and grow in grace that he begins to show you all of the sins that you have, Um, but they don't overwhelm you so much as they might have if he He'd revealed them all to you in the beginning. Verse 10 of chapter 12, uh, the Lord tells us there is a famine in the land. So Abraham goes to Egypt. Why would he go to Egypt? Because he's afraid God won't provide for him in the promised land. And so down there he goes, and again, he's working out his salvation with fear and trembling. He says, when we get down there, let's tell him you're my sister. Again, he doesn't trust God. Get down to verse 19, and what happens? Pharaoh kicks him out of Egypt, and we saw that as an an example where God is sanctifying them. He is separating them from the world. So back they go up into the promised land. Chapter 13, we see strife between Abram and Lot. And Lot, I shared with us at the time, represents um, the flesh. And so God's separating the spirit from the flesh and Abraham's working all of these things out in his heart. And again, this further represents sanctification, further represents separation. In chapter 14, Abraham goes and he rescues Lot because he doesn't want to let go of his flesh. Every person here struggles with their flesh. We have war with it and we'll talk about that later, but also we love it. We don't want to let it go. And so that's why... As I've shared with us in the past, the medical profession is a very secure profession because we will tend to run to it first when we have issues with our flesh, because we want to hang on to our flesh. That's what the Bible teaches. Genesis 15. Abraham Abraham has a question with God. He says, Who is mine heir? In other words, what about your promise? You said you were going to make a great nation out of me. Which who's my heir? And uh, so we see that again that he's struggling with the Lord about when he's going to fulfill his promise, and the Lord sets before him a sacrifice which Abraham or Abram is supposed to participate in. Abram takes the animals and slays them, and so Abram is involved in this process. Then you get to Genesis 16, and that is a huge oh, stumbling block, or that that's the place where uh, Abraham makes probably his major stumble. Um, But it actually began in chapter um, 12. Um, So Abraham and Sarah uh, really are struggling with the fact that she's not pregnant. Now, if you want to have children and you can't have children, it's going to bring you to tears. It's going to be very difficult to deal with, especially for the woman. I have no doubt that Sarah had tears of self-reproach. She was beating up on herself about, why can't I get pregnant? Surely I'm out of God's favor and it must have been something I've done. So she's going to have tears of reproach. Um, When we look around our society, there are women that have trouble getting pregnant. And then we see other women who seem like they get pregnant if they just stand downwind from a fertile male. And so you ask yourself, why is that uh, the case? Why can't I get pregnant? Why can these women get pregnant by just looking at a man? And so... Um, as they're talking about things, Abraham and Sarah, you know they're having pillow talk. You know there's a lot of conversation between themselves. How are we going to deal with this issue? How are we going to solve the problem? Sarah has the bright idea. You know what? Why don't you lie with my, um, with my slave? Hagar, why don't you lie with my slave? That was her idea. And so uh, they're working this out in their hearts, working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and that's the solution they come up with, which was the wrong solution. And they had to suffer the consequences of it. And as I've shared with us in the past, the entire world has suffered with the consequences of what took place then because from the Ishmaelites come all of the strife in the Middle East. It all comes from what happened right here. So I imagine Abram's out dealing with the flocks and he comes home one day and he goes, "Um, what happened to Hagar? Where's Hagar? Sarah says, I sent her away. You did what? You sent Sarah away? Why'd you send her away? Well, she was pregnant. Wait a minute, she's pregnant, and you sent her away? I'm sure there are more tears and conversation between Abraham and Sarah than is revealed in Scripture. You can imagine that conversation. You sent her away, she's pregnant. Why did you do that? Wasn't that the plan? Wasn't the plan that I would lie with her and she would get pregnant, and yet then you sent her away? I imagine Sarah might have said tearfully, well, she started to look down her nose at me. My slave was looking down her nose at me. What, you've got a slave and you're not treating her well? That's all sorts of other issues associated with that. So again... Abraham and Sarah are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and I hope you can appreciate how difficult this is on their hearts, just like it is on our hearts. Their hearts are on display for us, and it's not a pretty sight. Genesis 17, we see the token of circumcision given. Abraham is told to obey, so he's got to do this here. In chapter 18, we see that Abraham hastens to serve God, the, the God had comes to him. You see the Trinity there and he hastens to serve God and we see him petition God for Lot's sake. Then we get to Genesis chapter 19 and God drops a nuclear bomb on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities roundabout. Abraham saw that, meaning he saw the effects of it. I'm not saying he watched it. The Bible doesn't say that, but no doubt he understood and knew what happened and saw the ash cloud the next day. What impressions do you think were impressed upon his heart when he saw that? Both Abraham and Sarah's heart. Everybody knew what had happened there. What do you think your reaction would be to that? It would be very sobering to see something like that. You would think to yourself, I better sit up straight and fly right. I better start walking in accordance with God's word and clean up my act. Um I better <laughs> I better get on my knees and start praying. You start do, thinking all the things you ought to be doing. I'll start thinking about all the things the Bible says you ought to be doing. You would start to do that, I guarantee it, if you saw the ash cloud rise up from all those cities he destroyed. And I've no doubt that they did that. They cleaned up their act for a short time. In Genesis chapter 20, the very next chapter, we see that Abraham and Sarah, while continuing to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, equivocate again when they go down and live amongst King Abimelech and his people. So in the face of Sodom's destruction, they go down there and they lie again. Even King Abimelech, who's a Gentile and um, not of the elect, he's affronted by it. And he tells God, they both lied to me. Not only did Abraham lie to me, but Sarah lied to me too. They both lied to him. And so God is continuing to work these things out. Because instead of Abimelech killing them for what they've done, he gives them gifts and he sends them away. So God is going behind them and he's kind of cleaning up things after them. He's working out things for his own good pleasure. He protects them. Genesis chapter 21, Abraham sends Ishmael away. Whose idea was that? That was Sarah's. Sarah said, you need to send him. He's not going to be heir with my son. So Sarah wants him to go. You can bet there's a conversation between Abraham and Sarah that's not revealed in Scripture. And so you can expect um, that there was a great deal of struggling internally in Abraham's heart. What a heartache that would be. His son is 17 years old. It is Abraham's firstborn son. It is his son. It's not Sarah's. It's his and God tells him to send that boy away. So that would be a heartache. Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to offer up Isaac. Imagine what a heartache that might have been, except for now he's grown in grace so much to the point where he says, you know, if I kill this boy, I know God's going to bring him back from the life, back to life. Now he trusts in the Lord. Is the Lord. God has raised him up. Through this process of working out his salvation with fear and trembling, his faith has grown to the point where he is now a mature Christian, and he trusts in the Lord. Then in Genesis 23, we read that Sarah dies. Imagine what a heartache that would be. Abraham has known Sarah for 127 years. He has known her her entire life because they are indeed, um, that is, her sister. They have the same a father, but a different mother. So that would have been a very difficult heartache. Then in 24, we read that Abraham sends everybody away, sends all the sons away except for Isaac. Those are all his sons. That would be very difficult. You know, it's one thing when your family moves away from you in pursuit of a career, and another thing when you send them away that had to have been heavy on his heart. Um, 25, again, Abraham, we know that he has other children, and he sends them all away. Um, but again... God is working out in his heart to will and to do of his God goods pleasure. So we read throughout the course of all this that Abraham had left his country. He had left his kindred. He had left his father's house. He was a 100 years a pilgrim. He sent everybody away from him except for Isaac. He's lost his, his wife. All of these things are working themselves out in his life. Very difficult for him, just as it would be difficult for us. Abraham is pilgriming and it says in Hebrews 11:13 all of these died in faith speaking of all these pilgrims that are mentioned there not not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth meaning there was no promise to be received in this life. What we are promised is eternal life. What we're we promised is heavenly um, glory, eternal fellowship with God. It's, it's not here. I mean, we, have a, we are partakers of it because if you're a Christian, you have received the Holy Ghost and you can appreciate the relationship that you have with God. But as far as the, uh, the promise, the, the ultimate promise of being in eternal glory with our Heavenly Father, that we don't receive until after the grave. And so Abraham... Walked this world and he uh, was led by the Lord and he worked out a salvation with fear and trembling. Living what trials and tribulations God uniquely ordained for him. Just like God uniquely ordains different trials and tribulations for each one of us. We are all clay in the potter's hands, and the Lord is said to be the potter in the scripture, and we are said to be the clay. Each vessel is unique and different, and God works with each person differently. So, Abraham struggled with what things God would have him to do. We see where he failed miserably, and yet God picked him up and moved him on. But all of those trials and tribulations, all those failures, um, had an impression on him in terms of having him grow spiritually, just as it does for all of us as individuals with whom the Lord works with. Abraham same as you, works with whatever measure of faith God has given each of us. So again, God is working in us and we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So he was living out in real time for him just as we work out in real time for us the consequences of our shortcomings and our failures due to lack of faith and due to our failure to obey God. He was undoubtedly vexed and chastened by God just like we all are for disobedience, And yet he no doubt enjoyed the blessings that come from obedience um, to what would God have him to do, just as we all do. The Bible is full of, you know, curses for disobedience and blessings for uh, obedience. So what was God doing all the time in Abraham's life? Same thing he's doing in ours. He's working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, There's no contradiction in the Bible between a scripture like work out your salvation with fear and trembling and what we read in Galatians chapter 3 where it talks about having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? The answer is no, you're not made perfect by the flesh. It's part of your Christian walk by which the Lord sanctifies you and separates you from the world and builds your faith in him. Um, God always working in us, again, to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we have this imperative Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so we understand that to be reverential fear and trembling. Reverential fear and trembling, knowing and understanding who God is and what he's endeavoring to do with us, what he will do with us. And that's to conform us to the image of his son, Christ. So we pray, we read the Bible to ascertain God's will in our life so that we will know what to do and so that we know how we need to work on ourselves to help us uh, obey what things God would have us to do. Now, my daughter is in a Bible study down near where she lives, and a young man in the Bible study asked the question, is God sovereign or is man responsible? Is God sovereign or is man responsible? That's the wrong question. The answer he gave was yes and yes. (laughs) They're both true. The question should have been, is God sovereign and is man responsible? And the answer is yes. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. Nobody can ever blame God for their sin. If you could, then who would be judged when you were judged? Would God be judging his work in you? Um, Could he really uh, pass judgment on you if he was um, sovereign over you and you were not responsible for yourself? Well, he is sovereign, but you are responsible for yourself, and so judgment has meaning. Um, people want to talk about the issue of free will and there are volumes written on the issue of free will. Now, I thought I had free will this morning when I was going to choose a shirt for myself and my wife said, no, you're good. This is, she reached down and pulled out a shirt for me. So, I suppose that happens in a spiritual context when I think I'm going to do something. I think I chose to buy a blue car, but God was working in me to choose out the blue car. But nevertheless, I choose the blue car. So I would suffer the ridicule of people who say, why did you choose the blue car? Because it's just not very attractive. Again, I'm responsible for the decisions that I made. But yet God is sovereign over all things. So nobody can say to God, why did you make me thus? And that is the argument from Romans chapter nine. Why did you make me thus? It is your fault that I'm gay, people would say. It is your fault that I covet my neighbor's stuff. You haven't given me enough. You haven't provided for me in the way that I think I should be provided for. And so it's your fault that I steal. It's a small step from one little um, sin to a larger one where we would um, impute our motive uh, to God and then engage in an action that is totally contrary to his word. Thinking of Abraham God said he would make of him a great nation, and yet he hasn't done it yet. It's been many years. God promised me he'd be a great nation, and he hasn't done it. You know, there was a famine in the land, and I had to go down into Egypt to take care of my flock because that's where there was water. So I had to go down there. So it's your fault, God, that I went down to Egypt. Egypt is where he picked up Hagar. So it's your fault that I got Hagar because there was a famine in the land and I had to go down to Egypt to provide for my family, and that's where I got Hagar, and so I had Hagar with me. And because you didn't uh, get my wife a child that I had to go lay with her, so it's your fault that I committed adultery with Hagar. And all the trouble in the Middle East is God's fault and not man's fault because you didn't follow through quick enough. So we can do that very easily. But what we should appreciate from Scripture is this. It is never God's fault when we sin. It is never God's fault when we sin, and it is always God's grace when we don't. Always God's grace when we don't. So last week I spoke of sanctification, which means separation, in two contexts. One, I spoke of it as positional. We are positionally sanctified, separated into God from before the foundation of the world. Known and loved of God before the foundation of the world. And then I spoke of it in terms of experiential, Uh, sanctification, which is what you experience. That's why it's called that. I also called it participatory sanctification. And I called it that because it's consistent with the admonition to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Again, reverential fear and trembling. Now, it is experiential or participatory, participatory because, listen to this, you are the object of it. You are the one being sanctified, so you are the object of it. It is your heart. God is working to conform you to the image and likeness of Christ. You will participate in it because you are the object of it because God is sovereign and he's going to work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So, with respect to Abraham, I mentioned this in two contexts. I mentioned that as a type of God, he sent all of Isaac's children, uh, Isaac's half-brothers away from him. So that was an example of God sanctifying us, separating people from us that he doesn't want us to be um, associated with. He doesn't want us to interact with these people. Sometimes we know when it's happening, and other times we don't know when it's happening. God is working in other people to keep them away from us because he doesn't want them to influence us. In, uh, in negative ways. So sometimes it happens that way where God just removes them. Sometimes these people, thinking that they have free will and thinking that they're independent of God, remove themselves from your lives because they don't want to be around you. Quite frankly, a lot of people don't like Christians because if we are being salt and light, we have a convicting influence on them and they don't like that. And so they remove themselves from our presence. That is sanctification. Other times, God will separate you from them because they will vex your heart. They'll begin to struggle. You'll have these struggles in your heart that, you know, I just don't think this person's good for me. They're, they don't. They always seem to want to do things with me on Sunday mornings. They, they would like me to go out drinking and bar hopping with them, and I, I just don't like to do those things anymore. Once upon a time, you did. But now you don't like to do it because God is working in your heart. And so these things are vexing you. And the Bible uses the the language, you um, grieve not the Holy Spirit or grieve not the Spirit of God, which is within you. You can feel the sense in you as you're becoming grieved about them. So all of these things take place in Abraham's life with respect to people kicking him out, him removing himself from people and God removing him from them. So we see this when he leaves his country, he leaves his kindred and he leaves his father's house. All of this is God working in his heart to make this happen. As he matures as a Christian, he interacts less and less with the indigenous people and only interacts with them when it's necessary to do so. We begin to see that he has separated himself. So, finally, illustrative of the future tense of salvation, because we see that Abraham, having been saved, past tense, and after working out, present tense, his salvation with fear and trembling, we see that he is saved future tense from the wrath of God when he goes to his fathers in peace and is gathered unto his people. We see that in Genesis chapter 25. He is gathered to his fathers in peace. In other words, he has peace with God because of what work Christ has done in his life. So getting back to the present tense imperative to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, I want us to appreciate now where Genesis... Chapter 25 is going to take us next. So this is consistent with what we're talking about because now we're going to take it internally. In chapter 25, I'll read verses 22 and 23. It says, And the children struggled together within her. That would be within Rebecca. Rebecca's pregnant and she's fixing to have twins. The children are struggling within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, two nations are within thy womb and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels and the one people shall be stronger than the other people and the elder shall serve the younger. God sets before us here a simple truth that Rebekah is going to give birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older of the two twins, Jacob being the younger. But on a spiritual level, What the Lord is teaching us here is that upon regeneration, when a person becomes a Christian, there are two natures within them. There are two natures within us when we become regenerated. One is referred to in the scripture as the old man, that would be the elder, and one is referred to as the new man, that would be the younger of the two. We have seen a pattern in scriptures from the beginning of Genesis where the old man or the flesh always precedes the new man or the spiritual man. We saw that Cain preceded Abel, and then in the genealogies, we saw that the fleshy line always preceded the spiritual line. This pattern, or the truth of this pattern, is set before us in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read that, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 46 through 49. Howbeit, that was not first which was spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. And every one of us here, first you were a natural man and you fulfilled the lusts of the flesh. Then, upon regeneration, you became a spiritual man. First is the natural man, then is the spiritual man. That's what verse 46 teaches. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth, earthy. That's the description I read this morning in Genesis 25 about Esau. He's an earthy man. He's red and hairy all over. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So just as we were an earthly man and we bore the image of the earthly man, So too shall we bear the image of Christ. And we know that's Romans 8, um, 28 talks about that, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. We were once earthly. That's all our thoughts and cares and concerns were for fleshy things. And now we have a spiritual heart, and now we are concerned about things that are heavenly. The Lord is conforming us into the image of Christ. And so Esau represents the flesh. He is the firstborn of Isaac. And Jacob represents the spirit And of the two, it is said that the elder shall serve the younger. Meaning that someone who has been regenerated by God, someone who is a new creature in Christ, someone who is a partaker of the divine nature, your flesh will serve your regenerated spirit. Your flesh this morning got out of bed, and put down whatever toys you were thinking of, turned off the TV because your spirit said, I want to go to church. And so your spirit ruled and said, you're taking me to church. So that's an example of how the elder shall serve the younger. The younger shall um, shall dominate. Um, now, just as the children struggled within Rachel, the Lord teaching us the spiritual truth, so shall your two natures struggle within you. The spirit, the younger... Will eventually rule over the flesh. Now don't go too far with this because you're not going to eradicate flesh from your excuse me, you're not going to um, eradicate sin from your flesh, but this struggle is going to go on with you, and the predominance will eventually go to the spirit, and we see that happen in the scriptures. It is a war between these two natures that we are told to fight, and God even uses the word war. In First Peter chapter two, verse 11. The Lord says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, just like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. They were strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshy lusts, which war against the soul. There is a battle going on inside you. And so you are to engage in that battle. The flesh is lusting against the spirit. It is waging a war with your soul. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says something very similar. Galatians 5, 17, it says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. That is to say, you don't have the strength in your flesh to do those things, but by God's grace, you can do them in the spirit. Now, I'm not going to read, uh, I have a list of verses here from Romans chapter 7. You're all familiar with it. Where That's where, um, what is set before us is, is, hey, why don't I do the things that I want to do? And I do the things that I don't want to do. Why is this struggling going on in me and why am I failing in it? And he says, well, that's because I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And so... I have a will to perform, a desire to perform uh, that which is good, but I don't have the strength to do it. In other words, there's no strength in the flesh to overcome sin. The strength to be found is to be found in the Spirit, in Christ Jesus. And so how to perform that which is good? Can't do it in the flesh, but you can do it in the Spirit. And so this is the battle that's set forward before us here as we move forward in our lives, having been regenerated. You're going to fight this battle in here, and you're going to have to look to Christ to give you the victory over it. Um, nevertheless, um, though we're fighting this battle and though difficult as it is for us to fight, God gives us admonitions in the Spirit about what things we should do. And this I'm going to read because people want to throw their arms up in the air and feel like, well, I don't have to do anything because I'm a Christian. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 32, Here are a list of things that we are told to do. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 through 32, he says that ye put off concerning the former conversation, in other words, the way you used to behave, the old man. Put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 24, that ye put on the new man. Put off the old man, put on the new man. You're told to do that, which God, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, now when I'm reading this, I want you to think about the Ten Commandments. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. That's murder. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of, of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath And anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now that's quite a laundry list of admonitions that the Lord sets before the Christian. So you can't walk away from it as though, as a child of grace, they don't apply to you. And those things are not easy to do, but God tells us to do it anyway. So again, work out your salvation with fear and trembling that appears to be oxymoronic with, for it is God which worketh in you both the will and to do of his good pleasure, we must still do the first part. We must still work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which means you are to go to war with your sin. Of a truth, you are not perfecting yourself by the flesh. You are being obedient to God, and we are demonstrating our love for him by obeying, because Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. And so we can see in Ephesians chapter 4, there are quite a number of the Ten Commandments are baked into them. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm almost done here. Hebrews chapters 12, 1 through 4 says that we are told to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We are to... Look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, for help and strength to run this race and to resist sin. Christ himself is set before us as the epitome of one who did this, and he is set before us as an example because it says that he resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Whereas he lives in us, the life which we now live in the flesh. We live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So again, these things are all mixed up with each other about God working in us, our works (laughs) to obey him. So we are told to daily take up the cross and crucify and subdue the flesh or crucify the old man, and that's a difficult process. It is, again, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you will not stop doing that until such time as the flesh goes to the grave, and we go to glory um, with God our Father when he delivers us from the body of this death. Flesh and blood, the Bible tells us, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The flesh goes to the grave, and we go on to eternal life and glorified bodies with God. So the Bible says, thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So back in Genesis, we see all of these things working um, them things out in the lives of the saints. We see them working out their salvation with fear and trembling, and we see God working in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Just as we see it in their lives, we see it in our lives, and every one of them gets to glory, just like every one of God's saints get to glory. And with that, we'll say amen. Amen.